Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. A reminder that you can now pre-order my new book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. It's available pretty much anywhere. Today we're going to talk about hydroxychloroquine and not so much the medical debate over using the drug for coronavirus, but the political and media debate. Do you have something to say and want to make your own podcast? Let me tell you how to do that for free with Anchor. Anchor has creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. You can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's all you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This is a discussion about hydroxychloroquine and why I decided this was a good topic to look into. You know, I like to look at underserved and underreported angles and viewpoints, and this seemed perfect because initially, when people were talking about this anti-malaria drug, hydroxychloroquine, a pill that's been on the market for decades, when people were talking about how Chinese studies and a small study in France showed that it looked promising in treating coronavirus patients, it was not controversial if you look back at the articles written about it. And suddenly, almost overnight, as President Trump began talking about it, saying that this was a good possibility perhaps, that if it worked it could be a game changer and that he was acquiring millions of doses to have on hand just in case, well, it became a giant controversy. In fact, some in the media were treating it like it was dangerous quackery. A lot of the same phrases and themes were being used. And when I see that, it usually means to me there's something worth looking into when everybody's kind of on the same page. And you have to remind yourself that when news reporters seem so personally invested and so certain of something such as hydrochloroquine doesn't work and is dangerous and shouldn't be promoted, I'm thinking these reporters don't know that one way or another. They haven't done the firsthand scientific research and interpretations to know firsthand, personally, whether or not a particular drug works. Neither do I. That's why we can talk to people, we can quote them, we can report to you what certain scientists say. But when reporters start acting as if they know for certain, as if they have done the firsthand research and are qualified to make these distinctions, when they start sounding personally invested like they are the experts and they know the answer, I always think that's sort of a warning flag, a reason to look deeper 
into the issue. So I wondered about hydroxychloroquine, and I did begin reaching out to a lot of different scientists. I have talked to scientists who are working currently on coronavirus, working for the government. I've talked to academic scientists. I have talked to scientists who are actively researching hydroxychloroquine. I've talked to scientists who work at institutions where they're researching, I guess, what you could call the way it's been set up in the press, a competitor to hydroxychloroquine, which is remdesivir. And I started hearing a lot of the same things, including from some of the scientists I trust. You develop some background and history with some people whereby you don't know maybe on the front end who has the best track record for accurate information. But over time, when you go back to the same sources over and over again, you start to realize which ones have information that proves to be more trustworthy over time than other people. And those are, the, those are your go-to sources as a reporter. So I started hearing from numerous scientists that while neither drug, hydroxychloroquine nor remdesivir, or any drug for that matter, has been FDA-approved to treat coronavirus. There's some emergency use designations that are allowing the use, but in general, no FDA approval for any drug. There are many drugs uh, that, being, that are being researched right now, including some you probably haven't heard about. None of them have been, that we've talked about, entirely ruled out. Hydroxychloroquine, for all the controversy over it, is still being researched actively currently for coronavirus by the National Institutes of Health and, and numerous academic institutions and hospitals. So it is not off the table, despite what you may have heard in the media. The other drug, remdesivir, is an IV medicine. These are two very different medicines that let's assume they both turn out to work, I think would have very different applications, and here's why. Remdesivir is the drug that was developed for Ebola, the IV medicine, but never used, never approved for any purpose because there were other medicines that were deemed to be more effective for Ebola, so this one was never deployed. But the hope is that it could work in treating coronavirus. Meantime, we have the anti-malaria pill, hydroxychloroquine, where doctors first seemed to notice that people taking it for other reasons, like for lupus, were not getting coronavirus at the same rate as other people. So that's what tipped them off initially, that this could be a good treatment. And there were some early promising studies on that. As to the different applications, I think what's kind of accepted so far is that if hydroxychloroquine turns out to be deemed effective in something that can be used against coronavirus, there would be two applications in general. It would have to be given, according to those who have experience with it and have actually prescribed it to patients for coronavirus and seen some success, it would have to be given or should be given fairly early after the illness arises in the first few days, four, five, three, four, five days. They say it may not be terribly effective the later it gets, and particularly when someone is very, very sick toward the end, it could do more harm than good. On the other hand, the IV medicine remdesivir, that's something that's not given, you know, unlike a pill you can take at home, hydroxychloroquine. The IV medicine is something you'd have to be given, for example, at a hospital. You'd be quite sick by the time you're given that drug. It would probably be a different application. And hydroxychloroquine is also being explored 
as a possible preventive. I don't think remdesivir is being looked at as preventive. Talk about game changers. If hydroxychloroquine prevents coronavirus, that provides a potential answer to a lot of problems that could be coming up in the fall. And again, the scientists I talked to said because of potential side effects, which all medicines and vaccines have, they would not at this point necessarily give everybody hydroxychloroquine as a preventive or prophylactic, as they call it, prophylaxis. Maybe I've said that wrong. But it could be useful to have on hand for doctors and nurses, for certain people at high risk who maybe when there's an outbreak, it would make sense for them if prescribed by their doctors to take this as a preventive medication and keep them from getting, ideally, getting coronavirus and or getting a case that's so serious they would end up in the situation where they have to be on a ventilator or have to take a medicine like remdesivir. Now, am I saying that I think one or the other medicine, that I think there's evidence or I'm telling you there's evidence that one is better than the other or that either of them are better than a host of drugs we're not even talking about today? No, I, I have no idea. But what I've done, and some of this will be in my report Sunday on Full Measure, is talk to scientists and fairly represent some underreported but actually widely held views about these drugs. I also follow the money because quite a few scientists, let me think, every scientist I spoke to about this controversy told me to follow the money because they believe that the reason for the media debate that seems to lean so heavily toward remdesivir, the IV drug, and seems to so dislike hydroxychloroquine, the pill, they seem to think there's a financial reason for it. So I dug into that, and I did find that on the government advisory board that looks at what we should do in terms of coronavirus treatment, they've made recommendations that, in effect... I'll summarize by saying dialed back on the use of hydroxychloroquine, which was actually being quite widely prescribed by doctors around the country um, to treat coronavirus. It dialed back on that kind of use, recommending that not be done in that kind of a setting, and kind of gave the edge, therefore, to the other drug, remdesivir, saying that that one, while also not FDA-approved, but could be used in emergency use circumstances in a way that probably happens more often now than hydroxychloroquine. Kind of put them on even footing because it also said that hydroxychloroquine with the azithromycin you've heard about or z the combination use, that that should only take place in a hospital setting. Remember, remdesivir can pretty much only take place in a hospital setting. So now you're saying the hydroxychloroquine pill that could be given by most any doctor to people outside of this clinical setting now has to be kind of on even footing, only given in a similar setting as remdesivir. Something else I learned that scientists told me about these two medications, hydroxychloroquine is pennies per pill. It's been around for so long. It's available in generic form. Numerous companies make it I read an analysis that said even if it were widely used, it would not be a financial mover for any of the companies that make it because they sell it for so little. On the other hand, remdesivir, this IV drug that's new, um, 
they were estimating these scientists this this could be a thousand dollars a dose or more. Now I'll point out that Gilead, the maker, has offered to donate its entire stock so far, so they're not making any money right now off of whatever they're providing. But ultimately, this would be presumably a big financial driver for Gilead, the maker of remdesivir, if it turns out to be something that's effective and widely used. So there are people who think there's financial incentive to use one and not the other. But I would also say, in terms of who would be pressing for the drug, there really aren't a lot of financial interests because of the things we've described. Pressing to use hydroxychloroquine, there are no pharmaceutical lobbyists for financial reasons going to members of Congress or talking to members of the Trump administration on behalf of hydroxychloroquine for money reasons. But you can bet that there are lobbyists all over the place for Gilead who have been talking to members of Congress, federal public health officials, and so on to push for remdesivir. And there's not anything inherently wrong with that. This kind of lobbying goes on all the time. The pharmaceutical industry is, you know, all over the place on Capitol Hill and, quite frankly, in the news media and everywhere else, paying for advertising, lobbying, making their voices heard. This is perfectly legal, even if maybe sometimes you disagree about how it's done. But the question is, are some decisions being made that would not otherwise be made, or is the scale being tilted a little bit more in favor of something over something else because of these financial interests with connections who've made donations to certain politicians and so on? Are decisions being made on that basis? I guess that's the question. And you, you may never know, but it's certainly worth asking. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean, all of this discussion, that it's an either-or situation. It could be, according to scientists, as I mentioned, that both hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir have some use in fighting and treating coronavirus. It could be that we find out by the end of summer that neither of them works well enough or is safe enough to use in this application. There could be many other drugs. So we're not saying one or the other in my story on full measure or in this podcast. We're saying both may be good, neither may be good. But we should certainly be asking questions about this giant media campaign to controversialize hydroxychloroquine and to press forward or press to the forefront remdesivir. To see my report on this on full measure, it will be on Sunday, May 17th. You can get a station list to find out if we're in your city on the air Sunday mornings by going to CherylAckison.com and clicking the full measure tab. There's a station list. If we don't air in your area, there are other ways to watch. You can see us live at fullmeasure.news at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time online, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time Sundays. But probably one of the easiest ways is if you wait until around noon on Sundays, we post all of these segments at fullmeasure.news. You can watch them really anytime. You can also catch us on demand on the app called STIRR, S-T-I-R-R. You can watch Full Measure anytime on STIRR. When we come back, you will hear from the head of a physician's group, who gives her take on the hydroxychloroquine discussion. We're back. 
when it comes to studies on hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir, two of the drugs that we're talking about today that could potentially be used in treating coronavirus if either or both of them prove to be safe and effective after more testing and studies are done, they both have some data and some tests already behind them. And that's another sort of point of contention or point of debate in the media with, again, reporters claiming to know that one particular study or set of data is correct and another is not, or that they claim to have the ultimate answer when even scientists say they don't have the ultimate answer as to which of these drugs might be safe and effective for coronavirus. But there are many reporters tweeting, talking on Facebook, going on the news and claiming to know one way or the other the answers that haven't been answered yet. Um, to address the VA study you may have heard about, um, it was reported that a study of veterans who were treated by the Veterans Administration showed that when they were given hydroxychloroquine, not only did it not help them, but the, there was an increased risk of death, particularly from heart problems. And that's concerning, and that's something that the FDA used in, in essence, restricting or limiting its recommendations right now for when hydroxychloroquine should be used for coronavirus. Well, one scientist after another told me that that was not a study. That was a set of cases that was published in a non-peer-reviewed fashion online for the purpose, apparently, of controversializing hydroxychloroquine with so few details that, according to these scientists, it's impossible to know the true conditions and details of the patients who are given hydroxychloroquine. And the scientists say, if indeed these patients were circling the drain, as they say, very, very, very sick and had heart problems already, which sometimes coronavirus can cause, by the way, and were given hydroxychloroquine late, it could have indeed hurt some of the patients or their deterioration could have been blamed on hydroxychloroquine when in fact it was something unrelated to that. They say there were just too few details in this collection of cases that was published online to really make any conclusions. Now, I don't know one way or another, since I'm not a statistical or scientific analyst, I can only tell you that reputable scientists are saying this, and not just one or two, but quite a few of them. On the other hand, yes, there are scientists who say they think this VA paper was enough um, to, to really raise red flags about use of hydroxychloroquine. On the other hand, with remdesivir, there was a draft of a remdesivir study that was accidentally published. This is quite strange. The draft of a study accidentally published by the World Health Organization that showed no benefit to remdesivir. In fact, scientists who looked at the draft before it was removed say it had some negative results. Something like 18 patients were taken out of this clinical trial because of side effects. Now, the maker of remdesivir said, Gilead, said that they didn't finish the study and that never should have been published. The reason they didn't finish the study had nothing to do with safety. It was because they could not get enough test subjects, volunteers, to take part in this study. So again, kind of conflicting findings about remdesivir as well. But 
the people who are backing remdesivir so hard in the media did not want to pay attention to that study. Instead, they looked at some early data that Dr. Fauci of the White House Coronavirus Task Force said he found very important that showed some potential benefit. Again, you can find scientists, reputable scientists on both sides of this because other scientists told me they looked at the data on remdesivir that Dr. Fauci said he was so impressed with, and they say they were not. They said, if anything, there were some ho-hum results or even some negative results they saw. But Dr. Fauci said, even though there was no what they call mortality or survival benefit shown in a certain set of data for remdesivir, meaning it wasn't saving lives, it did show, he said, that people got out of the hospital, recovered four days sooner when using remdesivir in this set of data that he was talking about. That could be very important for some patients, getting better four days faster. So those are some of the discussions taking place. Again, you can watch more in our report on full measure. Now, Dr. Jane Orient, head of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, is one physician who thinks hydroxychloroquine has been unfairly disparaged. And I spoke with her. Let's hear part of that interview. We wrote a letter to the governor of Arizona because he put out an executive order that said it was strictly forbidden to use hydroxychloroquine for prophylaxis against COVID-19. So this means that healthcare workers who are exposing themselves every day, putting themselves, their family, and their other patients at risk are not allowed to take hydroxychloroquine for prophylaxis, which is being used in many places in the world for exactly this purpose. Have you all been able to figure out what motivated the governor to do this? I assume he will say it's for safety reasons that he believes that the medicine is more dangerous than of help. I think this is happening all over the country. There are only four states that have not put restrictions on the ability of physicians to prescribe this for COVID-19. This is the first strict prohibition I've seen against prophylactic use. And I think that some, some direction is coming from somewhere. And the FDA has put out this, this frightening, frightening statement that this might be dangerous, although hydroxychloroquine has been used with a, with a wonderful safety record for 70 years. A review of millions of reports in the adverse event reporting system does not show any heart problems related to the use of this medicine. Dr. Fauci has said he feels like positive evidence to date that he had reviewed was anecdotal. And instead, he thought the solid evidence was showing that this could really impact people in a negative way and do more harm than good. How do you view that? Anecdotal means an, an experience that's actually happened to somebody. There are, with all drugs, there are potential side effects. And just looking at our, our compilation of all the reports that we have seen, that we can find of patients being prescribed this drug shows a greater than 91% benefit to these people. What do you think the research shows in terms of the benefit that this medicine could be when used for coronavirus? We have evidence from the laboratory that dating back to 2002 or 2003, in other words, about 20 years, of evidence showing reasons why this might have a favorable antiviral effect. 
keeping the virus from getting into the cells, restricting its replication once it is there, uh, cutting down the period when the person is infectious, keeping the person out of the ICU, off the ventilator, and also calming down the cytokine storm, the overreaction of the immune system that has, is probably responsible for most of the really serious damage. How do you account for the difference in medical and scientific opinion about this drug? Because some people seem so certain that it can be a positive benefit to coronavirus patients, maybe even crucial in the early days, whereas some people are convinced it should absolutely not be used. That's a very good question, but I think that the physicians who are using it in the patients are possibly skeptical as they haven't seen enough of it or they're using it at a very late stage. But the ones who have the most experience are very enthusiastic about the possibilities. And we do have naysayers that we suspect may have a little conflict of interest because they are so enthusiastic about remdesivir, which is a new drug that hasn't been approved for anything. And that so far is showing really very equivocal or even negative results. The reception given to this new drug that you mentioned is certainly very different than the reception given to the older drug that you claim at least has a lot of history and safety behind it. So how do you account for that? What do you think the potential conflict of interest could be? I think you have to look at, at the money. There's no big profits made in hydroxychloroquine. It's very cheap, easy to manufacture. Uh, it's been around for 70 years. Uh, it's generic. Remdesivir is a new drug that could be very expensive and very lucrative if it's ever approved. So I think we really do have to consider there's some financial interest involved too. If people haven't watched the politics of medicine and the money behind medicine as carefully as you have, they might find it hard to imagine that there are medical people and scientists who would make recommendations based on anything other than what is best for patients. Can you give us your version of a reality check of what really goes on inside the medical profession and inside government in your view? I think we need to, to distinguish the doctors who are responsible for individual patients and care about them and the people in academia or in professional societies who are not really directly responsible for patients, but are more academic, they're in the ivory tower or in the government regulatory agencies, and they just have a different set of motives. On a, in a broader sense, medicine, it seems like, has become so politicized. It's almost like Democrat versus Republican, especially with coronavirus, on almost every issue. It gets split up along some sort of political or partisan line. What are we to make of that? I think this is a very dangerous and tragic trend that's been going on for a long time. The patient-physician relationship is being destroyed. We're having corporate takeover of medicine, top-down dictates from the government at all levels. And many times uh, patients don't see their doctor, a doctor who they know and they trust. They're seeing whatever provider happens to be assigned to them. There's now a black box warning on, is it on hydrochloroquine or chloroquine or both? Hydroxychloroquine, I don't know that there's a black box warning on it. The FDA has been saying some frightening things about it, but I don't think there's a black box warning, black box warning on the label. And certainly people have carried it in their travel kits for, for uh, 
decades of lupus and rheumatoid arthritis patients are not being monitored for cardiac defects or told about them. So if there's a black box, it sort, sort of appeared out of nowhere based on um, evidence that's certainly not been promulgated. Yes, I was told, unless I misunderstood and I'll look it up, that they just added the black box, that actually some scientists had asked the FDA to put out guidance that said, use it within maybe four days or so, that's when it's most effective. And the FDA didn't want to do that and instead did put out a black box warning. I guess that, that's something new and really unprecedented for it to appear 70 years after it's been in widespread use. And when people are complaining that lupus and rheumatoid arthritis patients can't, maybe can't get it because it might be a shortage if you use it for any other purpose. But certainly the threat of cardiac effects is something new to, to doctors who are prescribing it for them. If someone asks you what's the bottom line on these medicines that have been used for malaria for many years and their possible use for coronavirus, are they dangerous? Are they potentially helpful? What, what would you say? I would say that it's up to the individual physician to weigh risks and benefits. There are these things for all drugs. We have decades of experience with these. They're not new. They're not something that's, that's just uh, springing up at the last minute. Um, remdesivir is an analog for adenosine that, is, that might be incorporated into the genome state. Uh, but remember that your body has RNA too that it used to make protein. So anything that's affecting the viral genome is going to affect you also. And personally, just intuitively, I would think that to be very dangerous. Can you simply explain how the hydrochloroquine or chloroquine works? What makes it effective potentially against coronavirus? There are several mechanisms. One, it seems it more difficult for the virus to penetrate into the cell. Second, once it is in there, it interferes with the viral replication. And then it also seems to have an effect on the immune system of the body to reduce the cytokine storm, or the, which is the over immune reaction that causes most of the tissue damage in patients who, who die or don't do well. Is it possible that hydrochloroquine or chloroquine could be very effective in some patients, especially early, but quite dangerous to other patients, especially if they have certain risk factors or older or sicker? There are contraindications to hydroxychloroquine, like to all drugs. People who have G6PD deficiency, that's a congenital insufficiency. People who have myasthenia gravis, possibly people who have a, a a prolonged QT interval on their EKG might be at greater risk. Like with every drug, you should evaluate the individual patient. And last question, I thought of one more. What do you make of studies and reports that seem to indicate this can be very dangerous to use? I think that the report, like from the VA, all yes. but 11 of the 63 deaths were from this one VA report. It wasn't really a study, it just compiled cases. These were all severely ill patients. Remember, coronavirus affects the heart very often. It causes myocarditis, a viral inflammation of the heart. And these people are probably prone to arrhythmias, whether you give them treatment or not. That's Dr. Jane Orient, head of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. When I research stories, I inevitably talk to a lot more people 
than end up on camera or quoted by name in the final product. As part of the research for this story, my producer and I asked for on-camera interviews and tried to talk to a number of people who either were critics of hydroxychloroquine so they could be represented at length in this story, or who supported remdesivir. And we couldn't get anybody to go on camera. We talked to Dr. Fauci's office and asked for an interview because he seems to really think remdesivir holds a lot of promise. And he declined our interview request. In fact, the National Institutes of Health, where he works, says he's the only one authorized to speak on the topic, so we couldn't get anybody from NIH. We also asked for an interview from Gilead, the makers of remdesivir. They didn't want to be interviewed. And we asked for interviews from about a dozen scientists who have spoken on this topic, either, again, skeptical or criticizing hydroxychloroquine, or supportive of remdesivir, and none of them wanted to go on camera. Well, watch the report Sunday, May 17th on Full Measure, and go to CherylAckison.com and click the Full Measure tab to find out ways to watch. You can hear an extended interview, by the way, with another scientist I interviewed for this story, Dr. O'Neill, right now on my companion podcast, the Cheryl Ackison Podcast. That's already posted. Again, the Cheryl Ackeson podcast, if you haven't gotten enough on this topic already. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and I hope you subscribe to the Cheryl Ackeson podcast, as well as this one, Full Measure After Hours. And if you like my podcasts, you'll love my new book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and hate journalism. Support independent journalism and pre-order that anywhere. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.